Welcome to Couch Time. I am your host, Susie, a licensed marriage and family therapist, joined by my co-host, Janet, licensed clinical social worker. Thank you for joining our show where we dive into topics like mental health and relationship wellness, along with sharing our experiences and lessons learned on our road to licensure and building a private practice. You can connect with us at roadtowellness.co and susiehologian.com, where you can also find show notes for this episode. Are you in a long distance relationship? Is it difficult to find people who just get it? We know for us, it was challenging to feel understood and supported. That's why we created a collection of worksheets and guides for how to navigate long distance. You'll find information like how to communicate with your partner, how to keep things spicy, and how to discuss your values and closing the distance. This is totally for you. Head over to www.suzyhalagian.com shop to pick up your own copy and learn the skills to empower your relationship. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Couch Time Podcast. My name is Janet Byramian. I am joined by my colleague, Susie Halagian. How are you today? I'm good, Janet. Thank you for asking. Awesome. We are so excited. We are joined by another fellow clinician, Lauren Ruth Martin. She is the owner of Novel Counseling, um, and she's a practitioner of ACT and ROA DBT. And so we're so excited to talk about that further. How are you doing today, Lauren? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So excited to chat more. Yeah, we're happy to have you. When we talk to fellow clinicians in the field, before we start asking some questions, we would just love to hear a little bit more about you, your practice, got you into this field. Is, is there a story that you wanted to share with us? I mean, I basically basically got into the field because I'm nosy and I'm enthusiastic. <laughs> and I was like, if I'm going to have like everybody's secrets, I might as well pay for it and be bound by confidentiality. So that's why I got into the field. Before that, I was a radio DJ. And so I just took a hard left after getting out of that industry. And I've been in private practice now for about six years. And it's just a lot of fun. You know, student debt is student debt, but everything that I've learned along the way has been really worth it. And I think being a therapist has really helped me become a better person too. So I think that's the best part about this job. I love that. And actually, you know, you said you used to be a radio DJ. I'm, I'm a little nosy as well. So I was kind of creeping on your Instagram before <laughs> the interview today. <laughs> I love your reels. Like you, I feel like your Instagram and everything that you share, like you keep it real about our field. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I like to be a human first. And I know that's a big thing with a lot of us modern therapists is that we're trying to, you know, remain objective for our clients, but also show them how to human too, especially in a world where we're lacking connection, just being able to really model that. But also, I think that's what keeps me sane is that I'm not a different person in the couch or on the couch as I am, you know, in real life. I mean, there's boundaries, of course, but, you know, just trying to keep those a little bit more congruent. I think just makes sense. I totally appreciate that you said that because I think there is such a change happening in the modern therapy world and trying to almost like blend the old idea of what therapy was versus I think what, you know, all three of us are doing is so important for the public to see that it's such an approachable field. And I don't think, you know, historically it's, it's been seen that way. If you, 
I mean, if you think about it, therapy is kind of weird. Like we expect people to come in and tell us everything about them. And if we're not a human, I don't, I don't know if I would go to therapy if the person was a blank slate, you know? Totally. I don't know that I necessarily resonate with that either. Like I totally respect the psychoanalytic psychodynamic fields, like don't get me wrong, but you know, early in my career too. And it sounds like you, you hold the same standard. Like I didn't want to be super clinical with Mm -hmm. clients. Like I just wanted to be and show up as myself, as a person to model, you know, to the other person that I'm a human too, while also being supportive and imparting, you know, knowledge and whatnot. And I love that about what you're saying too, that we're human. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we can still be super clinical and, and actually be able to relate our clinical knowledge in a more digestible way. I think that's, that's what's made mental health so much more accessible is that we're all taking these things, all this research and all these like fancy terms and we're breaking it down into ways that actually make sense. And I I think that's why mental health has become more at the forefront. And I think that's why people do take us more seriously now, because we're not trying to just like pathologize everybody. We're actually trying to make people's lives make sense and give them like applicable tools to actually do the work. Absolutely. So it sounds like it's a very practical approach. Yes. And, that, and I'm very much like a behavior person. I, I try to be super practical while also being comfortable with things or really just getting comfortable with the uncertainty. Lauren, would you say that there were any kind of obstacles in trying to a- adopt that approach? I think, you know, a lot of times Jen and I talk about school and the way they teach you how to be a clinician can sometimes be an obstacle to to being that genuine, authentic human in the room with a client. Would you say that you found any specific obstacles that you had to, you know, hurdle over? You know, what's funny is that in school, I didn't deal with it as much, but it was more so when I was training as an intern therapist, Mm. you know, post-grad. And it's funny, like we were working under the model of standard DBT, which is very much about like radical genuineness and, and, you know, reasonable self-disclosure. And I think in my experience, I, I think that where I was working embraced being genuine, but to a certain point. And I think it was kind of like a culture clash. So similar like where you're talking about, like there's value in that sort of blank slate, blank slate, super clinical, a little bit more of a less than even power dynamic. And so I think that was like my biggest obstacle from when I was in a group practice to going out on my own was really trying to take that shift. Like I never felt comfortable being bossy over my clients or being the like ultimate authority to help shape somebody's behavior. And so getting over that hump so that, and then opening my own practice where I could take an approach that felt more authentic to myself That was probably my biggest hurdle because if you work in a group setting, you know, whether that's an agency or a group practice, there's the culture within that company. And sure, you can be yourself when you're in the chair, but if you're an intern therapist and you're under supervision, hard to keep in mind, or at least what was hard for me was that I kept forgetting that the supervision I was getting was coming from a bias Mm -hmm. and our biases weren't necessarily aligned. And so I think that was probably the biggest hurdle for me was reconciling that this person that I did respect, we just had different perspectives, but I don't feel like I was able to truly come into my own until I was on my own and around peers that supported being yourself. 
And I think so many of our listeners would appreciate hearing that because I think at that same time, when you are in an agency or or group setting or during associateships and internships, there's this feeling that, you know, you're trying to fully solidify and figure out who you are as a clinician and pieces that never feel like they fit. So to know that when you do kind of get to break free and go on your own, you do have more of that flexibility to solidify who you are and what you want to do. And this is no shade to supervisors or, or those that have been in the field longer. When you come out of grad school, that you should just automatically assume that you know best. I mean, there's great value in and being able to see how they do things and see how that matches with you and how it doesn't match with you and what parts that you can adopt. But if it's a clear, and I guess this is kind of like my little tip to like newer people is out of all of the things like, yes, you want to get paid. Yes, you want benefits, but who your supervisor is really matters in yeah. those formative years. Yeah. As you were talking about it, Lauren, I was thinking of just even my own experiences as an associate with supervisors and I guess, you know, I love your advice. If you have more advice, feel free to share. My thought was what I found really grounding and so helpful during those years was I I worked with a supervisor that had similar values to me and sort of somebody that I admired, you know, almost like a mentor and the supervisors that I didn't necessarily connect with similar to what you're saying, you know, they, they either didn't have similar values or their approaches, you know, with clients or the field was, you know, in my opinion, a little bit outdated. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. the honesty that sometimes it might take, you know, working with different people to find the right supervisor or, you know, if, if you don't necessarily have that option, maybe exploring like mentorship or other avenues to learn from people that you connect with more. Absolutely. Because I mean, if you, if you're with your peers and you're a bunch of associates, sure, that's great that you can learn from each other. But sometimes it's like, it's, you know, fresh therapists and fresh therapists, and you do want to be around more seasoned clinicians because they, they've They've been walking the walk. And you're right. I think mentors are great. And I know with a lot of first jobs, you really can't be choosy about your supervisor, but you can definitely be choosy about a mentor. And I know a lot of clinicians are open to being a mentor, you know, meeting with somebody once a month or even just kind of having like text exchanges where it's not even so much about clinical stuff, but just person of the therapist too. And I like the other thing that you said too, we start our own private practices or once we become licensed, it doesn't necessarily mean that we know everything. I think what you're saying is approaching our field with curiosity and, you know, always being open to learning. I think we can all talk about it when we're around clinicians or peers in the field that assume that they know it all or aren't willing to to get it wrong. It's a very one-dimensional view of therapy because there is always something new to learn the research is always changing. Our cultures are always changing. I mean, I started my internship in 2013. And so between now, then and now, our, our, our whole world has changed. And so there's a lot, you have to stay up with the times in order to not do damage. I completely agree. And going off of that continued learning and branching off, Lauren, earlier you mentioned, you know, standard DBT and, and kind of branching off from that, would you care to share wh- what you do and how that differs and and kind of the benefits that you've seen in using ACT and RODPT to, to you know, su- supplement that like previous learning? 
Yeah. So I was trained as a standard DBT therapist. And, you know, a lot of us in the field know a lot about DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. And what that's designed for is those with more under, like the terms that we would use are under controlled coping and under controlled temperaments. So I'm very much an under controlled temperament. Like if y'all were seeing me in the car right now, when the signal was cutting out, you know, I'm like tossing the blanket over my head and I'm like, ah, you know, I'm very expressive. And for a lot of clients, DBT really helps with grounding. It helps with thinking before making actions. And then radically open DBT really targets the other side of the spectrum. Because what we've seen is that having too much self-control can cause just as many and just as severe problems of having very little control. And so what RODBT is for, and that's called radically open DBT, that's designed to help those with over-controlled temper- temperaments and over-controlled coping get out of their shell a little bit more to be able to communicate better, to connect better with people, to have a little bit more fun, to be flexible, and ACT is a really good sister treatment to that therapy of increasing flexibility, being comfortable with our intrusive thoughts, not trying to micromanage ourselves as much, but just really being present and making value-guided decisions. You talked a little bit about about the fact that, you know, you can even use some of the coping skills of RODBT for yourself. I can totally relate to that, by the way. I'm someone that oftentimes has trouble controlling specific emotions, specifically anger for me. So I appreciate you you self-disclosing a little bit. And you know, I'm curious with regards to, again, your journey to this place, was there something specific that led you to becoming trained in RODBT and ACT? So with, with radically open DBT, with RODBT, I found myself, since I'm a very like high energy person, I, and y'all know what this is like, all of a sudden you start getting clients that feel more aligned and I always believe that there's like a little bit of serendipity when it comes to the Mm -hmm. clients and how they end up in your office. But I kept getting these clients that were super depressed, super suicidal, but they weren't, they weren't explosive. They were more implosive and they just wanted to like embrace their weirdness, but they felt like they couldn't. And they were very rule governed. And I was exploring, you know, I was either going to do EMDR or another type of training. My supervisor at the time was like, Hey, this really seems like you, you should go get this training. And it really was because it's trying, like, basically how I am as a person and kind of just keeping it real and being authentic is essentially what we're teaching those clients that are more over-controlled. And so it was basically what I was already doing. And I didn't realize I was doing a different treatment, like what I was targeting. I was targeting, you know, how they communicated as opposed to some more of the external and um, explosive behaviors that you would target in DBT. And then with ACT, I actually got interested in ACT during grad school. And I remember doing a presentation on it and our program was super CBT heavy. And I'll never forget, it's one of my friends, she like raised her hand. She goes, what do you mean thoughts are just thoughts? Like, aren't you supposed to control those? And that, you know, because CBT tells you so. And I was like, well, this says that our thoughts are just thoughts and we just have to learn to deal with our brains as they are. And so I think both of those models just really spoke to me because I I was dealing with a lot of people that were so stuck in their head. And I tend to be a more directive therapist. And I think that's what I like about it is that I can guide them and teach them 
And it's a lot easier for me to pull, I call it shoveling concrete in the most loving way, but I'm far better at shoveling concrete and getting people out of their shell than trying to get people to calm down. Because if somebody's like really whooped up, then I get whooped up and it's just a lot of nervous energy in the room. So I agree with you. It's so serendipitous how, you know, the clients that walk through our door, it's almost like sometimes the support that we impart for them, you know, we could use a little bit of it for ourselves too. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And it's, I just really, I, one of my favorite things is when I do an intake session and at the end, I'm like, yes, you were my type of person. Like I get what's going on. And when you start like sort of explaining stuff to them and they're like, oh my gosh, that makes sense. Like that phrase is my favorite thing to hear. I'm like, that makes sense. Now I get it, you know, because they probably just thought they were like, you know, crazy for lack of a better word. Like they just thought they were crazy or not good enough. When really it was a skills deficit or they didn't realize how this event or this way of thinking has really impacted them. Right. And that totally feeds that validation that we therapists need, but also like on that client's, you know, from their perspective, like you said, like when you see them just lighten up when they have that, I feel heard or, you know, someone gets it moment, it's so rewarding to see. And like, the, you know, describing like feeling that calm afterwards is so nice to participate in, you know, as a therapist too. Yeah. It's, it's similar to hitting the jackpot, you know, like, Oh, like, you you know, you're pulling slots and hoping that you get it right with the clients. And then when they say that you're like, yes. And then the next day you're like, I'm a horrible therapist (laughs) because (laughs) that feeling comes and goes so quickly. It, uh, I had, that exact exchange with myself yesterday. And it happened within a span of two hours. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. If we had to like monitor our moods like every hour, it would be very interesting. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I wonder, Lauren, I think every, especially new clinician, I think that's, you know, either in grad school or new to the field or in their internships, you know, I remember having the experience of, you know, what kind of clinician do I want to be or what trainings, you know, should I get? Because like you said, a lot of grad schools are very CBT oriented or a lot of these agencies that we work for after grad school, same thing, you know, we need rapid results. So it's a a lot of it is about CBT or, you know, other modalities Mm -hmm. and not to hate on CBT, like CBT is great. Yeah. I, I guess I'm, my question to you is, Do you have any feedback for some of the newer clinicians out there, you know, if they're feeling confused or stuck as to what type of clinician they want to be or what trainings they want to attend that's maybe outside of their agencies? Do you have any feedback for that? I mean, I think part of it is seeing is getting an idea of like what clients do you look forward to and what are their presenting issues? Like think about the sessions that you look forward to, you don't dread, where you do best work. And then see what treatments align with that. I have to have more long-term clients because I deal with chronic depression, eating disorders, modality. So I tend to look for treatments like, so ACT can be very quick techniques, RODBT, you know, the studies are for 30 weeks. But, you know, a lot of times I end up having clients that want more long-term work because their symptoms have been lifelong and it's a lot about and also building confidence for them to go try things out and then come in for a refresher, you know, every month or four to six weeks. If you're, that's where my chronically 
perhaps socially anxious people. So then I looked at the trainings or at the modalities that fit well with that. A lot of times I think, oh, my engineer of like, what do you like to see? What do you want to do for people? You know, do you want to teach people to calm down? Do you want to teach people to be more vocal? Do you like, do you like working through trauma? Do you like working with substance abuse? And then go from there. I do think having some training in CBT and even like mindfulness-based CBT is really good as a foundation. It's really for the, the technician side of being a therapist. And then going to the more artist side or theory of figuring out what and I know that being niche is more of a new trend. I'm just in more niche, but some people want to be general practitioners. And if you are, like if you kind of want to be a, how would we call it? I think it's yeah, just a general practitioner. Then I would recommend it for anybody because they have acts for trauma, acts for eating disorders, acts for depression. It's similar to CBT and where you can kind of learn the foundation of it and rinse and repeat. And it incorporates that mindfulness piece that CBT really misses. I love that. So it, I guess I'm hearing you say a couple of different things. You're talking about how, you know, doing a little bit of that self-analysis, like what type of client do I look forward to? What type of support, you know, do I enjoy providing? What population do I enjoy working with? So it sounds like a start to it would be a little bit of that self-analysis and then exploring, you know, what different treatments are out there that can be supportive to, you know, like your ideal client or the ideal population that you want to work with. Right. Yeah. So like if you want to niche, then think about your ideal client and then find the modalities that match that. Because if I did the EMDR training, it wouldn't have made sense for the clients that I see because I don't do a ton of trauma. I'm finding myself doing more trauma because I'm doing long-term work, but it's not the presenting issue that I get a lot of the time. I mean, I think everybody should have some sort of trauma training so they can be trauma-informed. But, you know, in that sense, I... If I went from, if I went to the modality that felt the most popular, then I wouldn't have had the right tools to serve my ideal client. But if you're wanting to be, or if you're in a setting that's more kind of like you're getting a variety of issues and you're not really niching down, then something like a good foundation in CBT and ACT is really good because all of those, all of those, those two modalities can be used across the board. Definitely. I love that too. Like you're doing that self-analysis and then doing the research based off of what modality goes with that. I was going to say, I think when we're in grad school and when we're becoming new therapists, we hear about the, the, and it's not necessarily trends. Like it's not the same as, you know, a new handbag or a, a haircut, you know, but I think we all get really excited about newer treatments and we want to be the first, or we assume that the training that everybody's doing, we need to do. And that can show, it can show efficacy, you know, and especially if there's a demand for it. But I think that's a very much a one, that's only one element. You know, if you think about it, we're, we're essentially in customer service. And so, you know, if you, you know, there's a lot of steakhouses in the world, but if your ideal client's vegan, then you're going to want to learn how to prepare vegan food. I love that comparison. I absolutely love that you compared our field to customer service. Because <laughs> it is. Because it is. <laughs> it really is. 
Well, and if we're wanting to change that approach from I'm the therapist, I know it all to like, hey, I'm a fellow human that just so happens to have this training and I'm, I want to teach you how to human too, then we got to take the, a little bit of the power dynamic out, even though yeah. there's naturally going to be one because people are coming to us for help. Right. I think too, because like essentially what you're saying, at least to me, how I'm interpreting it is to stay authentic within ourselves. And I actually, I just had a conversation about this with another clinician because I'm sort of exploring what I want to do next in my career. And the clinician was so amazing and asked me the question. So do you want to pick something based off of what excites you? Or do you want to pick something that's based off of what's more marketable. And, and I think like there's, there's no right or wrong to that. I mean, I could, I could go either way and still do amazing work, but I love what you're saying and what it fits for me as well. I think it's more so being authentic about what excites us and what, like you said, is helpful for our ideal client and what we enjoy working with. And a lot of that mindset goes, that's, that's the whole core of act of like, what are your core values? You know, everything can't be important. So for this season of life, what are your core values and how are you going to use that to orient your decision-making? You know, when I first graduated grad school, I couldn't necessarily be values aligned because I needed a job, I needed hours, and I needed supervision. Yes. But as I progress in the field, you know, then it goes, when you open your own practice, you're like, I just need to do what makes me some money so that I don't, (laughs) even though that's like the scarcity mindset. And then you're like, oh, wait, I'm fine. I will be fine. Like after three months, you're like, oh, I didn't realize there was this much demand. And then you're, then you can realign again of, okay, now I'm really trying to find joy in what I do and, and be comfortable with saying no. I think that's the really, at least for me, the biggest transition has been saying yes to everything and being really hungry and eager to now slowing myself down and still being open to trying new things and open to learning, but really knowing when to say no. I think that was my biggest hurdle. So if we go back to your very first question, I tend to talk in circles, but about obstacles, a big obstacle for me was learning to say no, because when I wasn't saying no, I was seeing clients that I was capable of doing good work with, but my willingness wasn't necessarily high, or it was hard to maintain the the energy in it mm-hmm. because it, it just wasn't aligned. I still think I did good work. And I don't, it's not like I didn't like the person, but it was what they were presenting with wasn't my strength. I also really like that you said all of that with such gentleness, because depending on what stage in your clinical career you are, you know, there are different needs and those core values that we are after. So it's important, you know, we've been talking about like being flexible about it and, and changing and, and continuing to learn. So it is so important to remember that you're going to have different needs as a therapist and a clinician after school and after, you know, you become licensed and, and to really honor those, I think is a great, great differentiation. And even with life, you know, I have a toddler and I'm like, oh, my toddler is going to be three this year. And eventually he's going to be in school. He's not going to be in daycare. And so I'm going to have to reset my hours. And it's stuff like that, that at least I didn't think about until now I'm like really having to face it. And really trying to transition people in a in an ethical way, I just think it takes a lot of thoughtfulness. And and you want to have you you want to be able to live your life, but also you want to be able to serve your clients the best way possible. So this is a question, Lauren, that we do ask every guest that comes on, and we did talk a little bit about this at the beginning. But our signature question is: What has helped you stay modern in the current state of therapy? And the second one is: Have there been modern changes? 
in the world of therapy that you've been happy to see? TikTok keeps me cool. I, I don't post on I don't post on TikTok, but I mean, I think part of it is like my clients do help me stay modern. You know, if I'm seeing I'm 35 and realizing that at this point, when I get a 20 year old client that like I was physically capable of birthing them, like I, I don't think that would be fun. But that that's a that's kind of like a shot to your ego and you can learn so much from them because the way that like the way that Gen Z sees the world is like amazing. I truly believe that we walked so they could run. I, I think that's been, I think my willingness to like explore new trends just culturally, like in our society and then, and listening to what my clients need. That's what keeps me modern. And the thing that I love the most is the most modern thing I love right now is therapists showing up as who they are. And not being afraid to say, hey, I've had depression or, hey, I take medication or, you know, I have my own therapy experience. That's what I love because we're breaking stigma through our lives as opposed to, oh, this is my job. So I want people to come to my practice. Janet, you mentioned it earlier, but Lauren, your your Instagram page is so full of that personality, right? Whether it's through the reels or even the tiny psychoeducation posts here and there. Do you, have you found that since showing up more, you know, visually and authentically on your social media pages and where people can find you, has that changed the interaction you get from the community of both therapists, but, you know, potential clients? I really loved making friends on Instagram, like with other clinicians, because it's, it feels like a little community. So I, I love that because it feels connected, especially during the pandemic. The person that I share office space, my really good friend, she was on maternity leave. And so I was kind of in the trenches of being a clinician in 2020, as y'all know what that's like. And I had consult groups and everything, but being able to hop on Instagram and be in people and, and comment, that was really helpful for me and being able to meet people outside of my little you know, Nashville bubble has been really great too. And then with clients, I've actually, a lot of my clients, some of them follow, some of them don't because I don't, you know, I don't make them follow me. That wouldn't be right. But I think they like it because they have reminders of what they've talked about in session, Mm -hmm. you know, of the skills. And it's kind of like a, Hey, like you're, you're kind of getting little doses of therapy through the week. And it's really helped. It's helped for people to know what they're getting before they walk in the door. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's like where it does get a little tricky because I am very honest about the social justice piece. I'm very honest about like, especially being in the South, like I'm a big Black Lives Matter person. I call out, you know, I call out racism when I see it. I'm all about challenging white fragility. Like I've got so much of that I have to unpack. And if somebody has trouble digesting that, that has been a little bit difficult just given being in the South and some of my some people that I've had historically are on the other side of that. And so it's, but it can be workable and it doesn't have to come up in session unless they bring it up. I'm not going to like, you know, totally bring that to session because it's about them. It's not about me. Love that. So definitely, you know, I'm hearing that just having these difficult conversations and even bringing forth that necessary realness, you know, on your social media. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I want people to know what they're getting into. And that's what mm-hmm. I like about social media is that you can get an idea of what your, you know, what your therapist is about before you walk in the room. 
And if anything, that's great for the consumer. Yeah. It it almost acts like, you know, a filter for, like you said, people that may not be the best match for you and who you are as a clinician, but also it, it just helps for people who might not know what it what it's like to see a therapist or not know what to expect when they're stepping into it and to see you and to see who you are and what you stand for. And if they find that they align with that and they connect and they can make that step in deciding to start therapy with you to make that easier is such a great resource tool. And like you said, also, yeah. you know, a resource for your clients who do choose to follow you to refer back and have have a running list of all the things that you help them with. Yeah. Cause I mean, I like, I think about my own therapy experience and there's a lot of times of like, Oh, I can't wait to tell my therapist this or what did we talk about last week? What was mm-hmm. that? And then to, you know, see things in your feed that reinforce that that's just increasing your, the likelihood that you're going to implement what you're being taught. I love that. That's such a good way to look at it. Yeah. Since we've been talking about social media, Lauren, where can people find you if they want to follow you? Yeah. So right now, my main my main home is Instagram. It's at Lauren Ruth Martin. My first podcast that I did last year, it's kind of like a, it's a lot about, you know, different skills to use, but it was my quarantine project. It's called A Novel Life. You can find that on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And then this summer, I'm going to release another podcast and just working on the concept of that. Um, It's also going to be on YouTube also. So I'm building a lot of things. But yeah, Instagram's my main home. Twitter overwhelms me and TikTok. I'm just not cool enough. I'm just not cool enough to hang on TikTok. So I just just observe from afar. Same. I I don't think I'm cool enough for TikTok either. (laughs) You know what? That's fine. Like, I I know what I am. I just stick to what I know. And if people in the Nashville area or Tennessee area, if they wanted to maybe potentially reach out to you and maybe work with you, how can people find you from that realm? Yeah, so that website's novelcounseling.com. Um, I will say that for individual therapy, I'm, I am full, but I love connecting people, especially in the Nashville area with other therapists, because finding a therapist can be really difficult. So I don't mind you know, if they want to hop on my wait list, they can, but I always give referrals because I can't guarantee. I mean, y'all know how it is. Like, I even know how it is for me personally. I'm like, I've graduated from therapy and then a pandemic happens or, <laughs> you know, life changes. And so, yes. but yeah, I'm, I'm happy. There's a contact us link on there and I'm happy to, you know, let people know what's up. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been so fun chatting with you and thank you so much for keeping it real. That's actually one of our signature statements here on couch time podcast. We love to keep it real with empathy. So thank, thank you so much for being here and everybody go check out Lauren's Instagram because she has amazing reels and I just love your dance moves too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now there was another fun fact. I was a I was a dancer for the National Predators for one year. So I mean, they are some professional dance moves. Just saying, that is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So for all of our listeners, everything that Lauren has mentioned and all the places that you can find her and connect with her, especially if you're in the area, will all be listed in our show notes. So please, please be sure to check that out. Lauren, thank you again for talking to us and really just sparking that interest and act in RODBT. I think like now I'm just ready to go and look more into it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us today on Couch Time. You can find show notes for this episode linked in the description along with all our references and resources mentioned today. If you enjoyed this episode, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next one. We will chat again soon. Bye.